Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Today is Friday, July 23rd, 2021, and I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We had another great set of conversations on the show this week. I want to bring them all to you in this episode and an upcoming episode that will be coming out on Monday, the 26th. This particular episode is going to include all of our line panel conversations from the week that was, including an extra that you only caught if you happen to be on Facebook on Thursday when we tape. But uh, first, want to let you know who's with us on the line panel this week. We've got regular Serge Martinez from the UNM Law School. Also joining us this week, former State Senator Diane Snyder and Inez Russell Gomez head of the editorial page at the Santa Fe New Mexican. And we're kicking things off with a surprise to a lot of folks ruling by the New Mexico Supreme Court that said that gas stations have a duty to not sell fuel to drunk drivers and actually makes them liable in certain cases if someone uh, fuels up and then causes an accident. And obviously a complicated topic and a very sticky one in terms of when you think about uh, self-serve pumps and all of that sort of thing. Also, this was something that the Supreme Court was basically asked to look into and rule on by a uh, federal circuit court of appeals. And so want to dive right into that conversation. would love to get your thoughts on whether or not you think this is an innovative and effective approach or way off the mark. So leave us a message or hit us up on also any of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, just search for New Mexico and Focus. But here now, let's toss it over to host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. Raise your hand if you saw this coming. Be honest now, because on Monday, the New Mexico Supreme Court ruled that gas stations have a duty to refuse to sell fuel to drunk drivers. And if they do, and if that driver hurts someone, they could be liable. And that is where we begin with the Line Opinion panel. Joining us from Santa Fe, where she is the editorial page editor for the Santa Fe New Mexican, Inez Russell Gomez is back. Good to see you here this week. Diane Snyder is back. She's one of our regulars. She's a former state senator and UNM law professor in line. Regular Serge Martinez returns as well. All right, we'll start with you, Serge. Does this feel like a, let me put this, a dramatic expansion of liability, or is this the natural evolution of the law, as our lawyer friends like to say sometimes? Uh, I was really surprised by it. So mm-hmm. uh, for what that's worth, I think um, it was, I, I was not aware that anybody saw this coming or thought that, oh yeah, this is a natural right. effect of, of you know, what the court has been doing or the state's public policy around uh, DWIs. Uh, So I I think it, you know, the reason it came up was because the 10th Circuit, the federal circuit court, asked this court, the New Mexico Supreme Court, to answer the question. Mm -hmm. They didn't go out of their way to do this, but once it was in front of them, they made a decision that, to me anyway, was also surprising. You know, Inez, it wasn't a unanimous decision. Retired Justice Barber of the Hill uh, heard the case before her career was over. You know, she just left and she says, this, this is a bridge too far, she said, and could theoretically put at risk places like auto parts, stores, tire retailers, anyone who provides something to a suspected drunk driver. She has a point, does she not? She has a point, but I think mm-hmm. probably um, she's exaggerating slightly mm-hmm. because if you read the decision, what it's saying is that 
this was a case where they're looking at an atypical set, a set of facts. So I don't think that someone that drunk is going to go into stores to buy gas and that they will be able to then sue for a, the store being liable. Mm -hmm. So what, what I think is that in most cases, this isn't going to be applicable because gas is self-service. So the, the clerk is going to have no way of knowing it, whether his customer is drunk or not drunk. So even if you tried to sue the gas station, it would get thrown out. This to me just gives you the opportunity to sue if someone walks in drunk pays and then you know totters out to get their gas mm -hmm. so i i don't think it could be that far reaching um and the idea is if someone like totally drunk goes to an auto parts store to get a battery and can barely carry the battery out and you let them drive off you are in a sense aiding you know a potential fatality or injury let me let me push back on you just a little bit there inez because again it doesn't take that much in our state to be legally drunk in mm -hmm. appearance wise you can be, appear to be quite sober at 0.08 and still blow over the limit i mean I, again i have to ask if this is a situation where an untrained person has to look at someone and make an assessment yeah. inside 10 seconds isn't that just again a, a pro asking for a problem here well, it says in the in the, mm -hmm. the case, it says the vendor knows or has reason to know. Okay. So someone at 0.08, you know, like who drinks a lot and doesn't look drunk, you wouldn't have any reason to know. I think this is for the case where the person's carrying a bucket to put his gas in and sloshing it on the way out and mm -hmm. can't count his pennies when he's paying you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you should say, wow, something might be wrong. Yeah. Senator, the case came from uh, the death of a Navajo man who was struck and killed by a drunken driver back in 2011. His brother filed a wrongful death lawsuit. It was actually the federal court of appeals that asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. Now, in that case, the driver ran out of gas, walked to a station, filled up, then went back to buy more gas. So that's twice he bought gas while drunk. Uh, does that seem like it should have been noticed by the gas station? I know it's hard. It's easy for us to kind of you know, judge these things, but I have to ask again, you know, same questions I put to Inez, how does one really know what makes up a drunk person by sight? I don't think that you can always know. Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminds me, I'm, one of the questions I had is, how are you going to train all the clerks to recognize, and un, which we do have in the restaurant industry, mm -hmm. uh, liquor uh, recognition and training programs, but they're seeing people, customers, regularly. Right. Well, you might not see a drunk customer at a gas station once in two years or something. So I don't know how they're going. And I went through that training back because we were having events and stuff years ago. Mm -hmm. And you just can't always tell. So I think there's a problem. The, the main thing that I have a little bit of problem with is to me, it sounds like the Supreme Court is writing law for New Mexico, which is a legislative prerogative, not the Supreme Court's. And I, I understand that the Fed sent it down to them, but they could have said their ruling could have easily been, this is something that needs to be addressed by our legislature, mm -hmm. which would have given time for public input time for the industry to be a part of it in right. the discussion and do we want to go that far all of the things we're talking about could have been discussed in a legislative hearing 
Then, once the legislature made a determination and made it law, regardless of which way they went, that wouldn't end the opportunity to have a lawsuit mm -hmm. and eventually have the New Mexico Supreme Court look at it. But I just, I just, my first, very first response, other than how are they going to tell, was they don't really have the right because if you read the the ruling, what it said is, well, based on this law over here, right. we're thinking this. Well, if you're basing it on that law over there, then you have admitted that it is a law that you need to, to be able to define your opinion. And I believe that uh, Justice Vigil actually made that point <clears throat> in her dissent. So I, I, I just think we're kind of getting that old cliche, the cart before the horse here. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like the Supreme Court had to make this ruling the way they did. I think they easily could have given it back and legitimately right. given it back to the legislature to determine what kind of law we wanted to have. That's then a, they could hear that's a key whether point. the incident. I, I appreciate yeah. that. That's, that's a very key point. Uh, Serge, let me ask you this. You know, I'm still back on this logic of, you know, who's drunk where and who can tell and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, the driver, let me go back to something, you know, in that case we were talking about before, the driver was out of gas, clearly drunk, couldn't have driven otherwise, but what about a drunk driver who isn't out of gas? How do you determine whether the gas is sold if the gas used, if that driver then goes out and hits someone? Do you know what I'm saying here? If a day later he can't, he can't tell you where he got the damn gas, I mean, who's liable here? It's interesting that way. You know, I, I, I absolutely agree with that, right? This is a very special set of facts where we know that the gas that was sold to this person by this place was what made it so he could drive off and, and you know, kill this other person. Right. People who show up at the gas station, they already have gas. They're just topping off, right? And they go off. We don't know if it was the gas that they bought that was the final straw or not. There's, you know, in this particular case, it's a lot easier to tell, but there's some logical... I don't know, challenges to, to that sort of mm -hmm. approach of, of just how but, much the purchasing of the gas was contributory to, to what happened. Right. Inez, so, do you want to add to that? I mean, I, I hear your point earlier, and I, I, I do want to have a chance to defend your point there. Is that, as you're hearing the folks talk about this come around, you're still in that same position you were earlier that it, as, as you spoke about it? I just think it gives an opportunity in extreme cases for people to win damages. So I don't think this is going to apply in every case of drunk driving where you're going to search back and get their credit card receipts to see where the gas is from. Right. But I and I agree with uh, Diane that, you know, obviously the legislature should write the law. So whether the decision had to be written this way is a great point to discuss. But now the legislature can come back and decide how it wants to deal with this now that the court has put it out there. So that's another response that could happen. Mm -hmm. I should remind the folks at home, there's only one other state in the country that does this. It's Tennessee. It's very interesting how this happens. Senator, might there be unintended consequences? Let's say this happens in a small town. The gas station's put out of business by a successful lawsuit, as Inez just described it. This isn't just a place to buy gas in some of those places. As you know, it's a grocery store, the only pizza joint in town. Is that a concern or is it taken a, a hypothetical, maybe just a little too far? No, I don't think so, because I think too often we, uh, and they'll certainly tell you this, legislators from the rural areas, mm -hmm. is too often we base decisions on Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Farmington, or Las Cruces uh, instead of the rural areas and don't 
if if somebody brings it to our attention, then we then we listen. Right. But we don't automatically think of the little places that just have one little gas station. And the thing about it is, then you get into the clerk. Two things. One is the clerk might know the person right. in a small town. Good point. Good point. And it's a little more reluctant to bring that to someone's attention. And the second thing is, is what if, and this is another hypothetical, is mm-hmm. what if the person buying the gas goes in, has only had a couple beers, then gets buys his gas, gets back, and so he doesn't isn't drunk or doesn't look drunk. Mm-hmm. He gets back in the car you know, hoist a few more as he's driving along and then hit someone, does it place that clerk and the store in any liability? Yep. Because how can you prove how drunk he was? Because there's no test to tell. I mean, no test has been done at that point. That's right. As what, how drunk he was at the gasoline place. Mm-hmm. Strong so. stuff, Senator. Good stuff there. We'll see how this all plays out. The plaintiffs in the case expect the Tenth Circuit that uh, Serge mentioned, Court of Appeals, to send it back to federal court in New Mexico. Don't forget that now. Now, we're back in a few minutes to talk ethics at the Attorney General's office. Next up for our line opinion panelists, a discussion about an ethics complaint filed against Attorney General Hector Balderas. This all has to do with his office's handling of a proposed merger between PNM, that's the Public Service Company of New Mexico, and a company called Avangrid. Originally, uh, Attorney General Balderas was very supportive of it and then had to backtrack a little bit. And now, as we mentioned, this ethics complaint has come up because the uh, law firm that was basically lobbying for Avangrid, in this case, has a lot of relationships and past dealings with the Attorney General's office. It's a complicated one. You're going to hear some um, possible solutions even tossed out in this discussion, Uh, but it's one that we are keeping a close eye on. As you will hear Serge Martinez mention, one thing important to not get lost in the conversation is the merger itself, which is still running through the process, and uh, Serge talks about not wanting to lose focus on what the impact will be for us, the customers, and the ratepayers. And the ethics complaint should not interfere with heavy conversations about those topics. So here once again, the Line Opinion Panel. Set against the backdrop of the proposed merger between P&M and a company called Avon Grid, an ethics complaint against Attorney General Hector Balderas alleges he was too easily swayed by the lawyer for Avon Grid when he voiced support for the settlement deal. Now, filed with three state agencies, the complaint says it's Mr. Balderas' relationship with Marcus Rial and his law firm that's getting in the way of his duty to be the lawyer for New Mexicans and to look out for their interests. The two are friends, but as Searchlight New Mexico and the Santa Fe Reporter have pointed out, Mr. Balderas' office has hired Mr. Rial's firm to represent the state for far more often than it's hired other law firms for far more money, too, as a matter of fact. And Diane... The watchdog groups who filed the complaint say even though Hector Balderas changed his mind when there was a better settlement offered, giving more money to ratepayers in impacted communities, he clearly left money on the table. Does this seem like a clear conflict to you? <clears throat> Just with your statement, maybe mm-hmm. not. Okay. But the whole, if you look at the whole scenario of it, 
you instinct says you know there's something rotten in Denmark so to speak mm -hmm. and um, it's it happens more often in New Mexico in age, state agencies or governmental agencies than than I than I think we should be seeing. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing that I do think is, is you hear all the time, oh, well, look at the record. We did this, 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 this. Well, that's true. You did follow all, and I did see that. We followed all the procurement code statutes. Mm -hmm. However, there is a thing called an RFP. And when you write the, the agency requesting the services is the one writing the RFP. And you and I know that you can write that RFP to where it only one firm That's meets. Right. The, I mean, you can say like uh, require 10, minimum 10 years of acting as an, uh, a lot, the uh, legal firm for a governmental entity. Right. Well, that wipes out a bunch of people right there. So, but you can put those kinds of things, which are legitimate, into the RFP so that only the firm you want gets selected and does meet all the criteria. I, I think that in this case, regardless of what the real reasons are, and maybe there was no hanky panky. The cynic in me says, uh huh, but I think it's the appearance ah, of evil I see. is so strong in this case, particularly because our AG had been had been saying that this really wasn't a good deal for That's New right. Mexico. That's right. And then after these long meetings with his good friend, uh, which by the way, their law firm is a good law firm. But after that, those meetings, then he suddenly switched his position. That makes most of us very skeptical. And let I let think me, let me, that, I, I hear that. Let me ask yeah. Inez to get in on this too. You yeah. know, Inez, regulators in the AG's office are, you know, they're often looking at whether the balance of such deals, you know, as, as Diane's mentioning, tilts too much towards shareholders and away from ratepayers. But mm -hmm. when you're sitting across the table, as Diane just mentioned, from an old law school buddy and a guy you've hired a bunch of times to work for you, how does that balance work? You know, protecting the, the ratepayers versus the shareholders' desires. It's obvious that people trust uh, folks they know. Right. And Avangrid PNM um, hired somebody that was known to the AG's office and all probably a lot of other important New Mexicans, mm -hmm. which is spending their money wisely, even if they did pay him, you know, double what he usually makes at the AG's office. The problem- I wanna make sure it, I, I understand it, what you're saying, it, it, that it was in their, it, it's in their better interest to work with someone that they know, even though it may cost them or the taxpayer double the amount? Well, no, I'm talking about the private company. Gotcha. The private company hired somebody that they knew had an in at the AG's office. Gotcha. And mm -hmm. it said in the reporting that he's getting double what he got from the AG's office from the private company. So he's making a lot of money, right. but they're getting access that they wouldn't get otherwise. And, and that's the problem is he might be perfectly correct in his arguments. He might be making a great case. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that because he knows the attorney general and the attorney general knows him, and I don't know that just because they went to law school together, they're necessarily buddies. Uh, you know, my husband has a, a million law school people that were his classmates that are not his friends. Um, so who knows right. that part right. of it? That's kind of speculation. But what we do know is they had all those meetings and afterward Hector changed his mind. 
So what I think is this is another issue for, you know, our ethics commission, but also for our legislature. Can New Mexico have some sort of statute that says if you are paid by a state agency X amount of dollars within a year, you cannot lobby that same agency within a certain period of time. And that way they can't hire the guy who has connections to walk into his friend or colleague's office to sit down across the table. Mm -hmm. So I I think this opens up a discussion about who do we want getting taxpayer dollars and then turning around and using that access to get private dollars. And can we stop that? I love the way you put that last bit there. Serge, do pick up on that. (laughs) She left a good one there for you. That's for sure. Um, well, I mean, I think, uh, first of all, I'm, you're never going to hear me complain about people employing our graduates. Um, so, you know. From UNM Law, that's right. Of UNM Law, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I think, obviously, you know, the, the optics of this are not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I get that. Um, and while I don't want to take away from the, the question about ethics, I think it's an important one and, and sort of how we do this. And in a state like New Mexico, where... People, you know, everyone knows everybody. Um, yeah. There might it'd be an interesting way, interesting uh, question. Like, how do we address that, and how do we do that? Um, but I am also a little bit concerned that this is flaring up right now at a really important time for these this merger as well, the hearings, mm-hmm. and and to say, you know, focusing on this this with Hector Balderas is it's not unimportant. I don't want to say that, but I do think. You know what? This merger is a huge thing for New Mexico, and the questions that are still out there, like that, that need to be resolved, such as what is the, you know, the the amount that's going to come to ratepayers? How is this going to be divided? Those are still open questions. Those are right. still in, things that need to be resolved. And so, I want to also make sure that we focus on the actual meat of this, which mm-hmm. is this is, you know, the actual deal is something that's going to affect every single New Mexican and definitely the you know the Barderas Israel um, connection is part of that but mm-hmm. it's not the whole story and we're approaching a really important point in these hearings I appreciate you saying that that's an important point uh, Senator I got a question for you would, would Mr. Balderas have been better off coming up with a policy that he could point to that would protect against the appearance you know of a conflict instead his office called the complaint baseless uh, does it seem baseless I mean is that is that the way to push it back to the public like that uh, no, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to just quickly to answer your question and to follow up on something I now said. Mm-hmm. I like the idea. Right about of, a minute and a half, by the way. Sorry about that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like it, the legislature could, could, in looking at how our current laws, maybe to protect the public, mm-hmm. you could say, okay, if this law, if a law firm or any other entity, but a law firm has done business with this agency in their defense, representing them in legal cases, representing the agency, the governmental agency, they may not for X years or whatever, work for a company, private company that is coming before the agency for help or a request for help. Okay. And that's a little scattered, but the idea is there you, you don't have because to me the bad part is here's the law firm that's been working for this state agency for the attorney general right. and all of a sudden now he's working for the private entity in face of 
the mm-hmm. attorney general. So maybe there is something that could be done along those lines. Sure. And I see Serge using his hand there. What do you think, Serge? Uh, you know, I, that raises some concerns for me about because, you know, one of the bedrock principles of our profession is anybody should be able to choose whoever they want as their lawyers. And that applies to the state as well as someone else, right? You should be able to choose who you have representing you and advocating for your interests. And so I would be, uh, the devil is always in the details, but you know, limitations on who you can have as your lawyer um, are, there are a few situations where that applies, but it is, you know, something that we, I would, be really wary of. Real quick, finance. Go ahead. Oh, just real quick. Um, I just wanted to follow up to what Serge said about the bigger issues. To me, the bigger issue, even more than shareholders versus stakeholders or ratepayers, is whether Avangrid purchasing PNM puts New Mexico in a better place to become a renewable energy state. Yeah. And is it better for the planet? I mean, you look yeah. at it, we're, we're part of a big global climate crisis. Are we going to be better off? With a really rich company that can invest in solar, et cetera, et cetera, than we are with PM. Good point there. And I don't know the answer, but that's oh. the question we need to be asking. That's right. And I remind this is the only publicly traded company we have. This is kind of a big deal to get this right, that's for sure. We're out of time on this one. Rounding out our line discussions this week, uh, another sort of ethical conversation, this time around public financing. No doubt you've seen some of the reporting in the Albuquerque mayoral race of uh, um, challenger Manny um, Gonzalez, who is uh, running against Mayor Tim Keller, who is seeking re-election, and he has been denied public financing of that campaign. To do that, you have to gather signatures and $5 donations, and it has been determined that uh, enough signatures were forged or not accurate on the signatures and Um, donations that Manny Gonzalez submitted that uh, he should not qualify. He is appealing that decision, but he also, in the course of of fighting for this money, has admitted that he knew some of this was going on. Some of this happens in the course uh, of uh, gathering these signatures every time, where you might have somebody sign more than one candidate's uh, signature list uh, or put down a false name. And so some of this comes with the territory, but as you were here, Inez Russell Gomez mentioned there's a difference between that and just being unethical. And so this uh, still has ways to play out in the system, but the election's coming right up in November. So here is that conversation with the Line Opinion panel. First, it was Albuquerque Mayor Tim Keller complaining about his November opponent's effort to get public campaign financing. Then the city clerk agreed. Then a hearing officer this week said the same thing. Bernalillo County Sheriff Manny Gonzalez used some forged documents to try to get hundreds of thousands of dollars for his campaign. Now, Mr. Gonzalez says he'll appeal to the state district court and surge. One of the sheriff's points in his defense was that challenges seem to happen in every campaign and there are always inaccurate or forged signatures. That wasn't valid in the hearing officer's eyes. Think I'll have any more luck in court with that? Uh, no, I don't think everybody does this. It doesn't work when, you know, with my kids trying to get out of trouble and it doesn't work in the, the court system, yeah. uh, especially with something as important as public financing and election law. 
So I, I would not be confident that that was going to prevail. Yeah. Inez, you know, interest, well, let me start, I'm going to skip you, Inez, my fault there. I'm going to go to the senator for this one, my fault. Uh, one of the points uh, the sheriff made in his defense was that challenge, you know, again, it happens every campaign, and he's right, it does happen every campaign. Is he not right here? Yes, he is right. And uh, I have to say that having, I, I never uh, did public financing, but you did, I did have to collect signatures. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was thinking about is when you have a primary particularly, and you say, say I'd had three or four Republicans running with me, mm -hmm. then people do make a mistake because they may have signed my petition and then they sign somebody else's. So most candidates allow for those kinds of mistakes that happen, or somebody signed their name, like I'm registered as H. Diane mm -hmm. Snyder, mm -hmm. and somebody signed it Diane H. or something like that. There are things that get removed, signatures that get removed. So you make allowances and collect additional, more signatures than you're required to have. There you go. Mm -hmm. But I think, if if I understand this correctly, Sheriff Gonzalez admitted that some of that That's right. had happened. That's right. And he knew a person, one of his volunteers, who had done it. Um, that, to me, makes it a little more concerning because you can, as a candidate, go through and wipe out signatures yourself. That's right. You don't have to turn them in mm -hmm. if you know that they're inappropriate or, or collect, collected Good. inappropriately. Good points so there. I, let, me, let me, in the I, interest of time, yeah. Senator, I'm sorry to jump in no, on you there, sorry. but I want to get to yeah. Inez here real quick. One of the reasons we're talking about this is that a bunch of cities have public financing, including yours, Inez, and Santa Fe. Uh, mm -hmm. Is this collection and qualification standard and process we're talking about here, is this the right way to go about it, frankly? Well, I don't know how else you can decide how you're going to give money. I mean, basically, you're taking taxpayer money that we agreed as taxpayers to give to public financing, mm -hmm. and they want to show that the person signing up has some semblance of support. And getting signatures and, and collecting money doesn't seem like a bad way to do it. I mean, you don't have to either A, forge signatures or tell the person, I'll pay for you, so it's okay. Right. I mean, those right. are things that that campaign chose to do. You don't have to do that. And that hasn't really been a problem in Santa Fe. Mm. I mean, we have had a perennial candidate who runs, gets signatures somehow or the other, I have no clue how, and then spends all the campaign money on lunches with her friends. And right. that seems to me a problem but but in terms of the collection that hasn't been a huge issue in santa fe yeah it's interesting you know serge uh, i gotta go back to um the accusation by the sheriff to the keller campaign that mr keller has appointees working against him what happens if he loses in district court because mr keller does not appoint judges i mean what happens right. after that well yeah i mean i i i don't think there's much to that argument to begin with um but you know, I guess you keep appealing and appealing until you get up to the Supreme Court. Um, but I do think there is, you know, an interesting, a, a kernel of something interesting there, which mm -hmm. is this probably the best practice would be to have, uh, you know, instead of having the, the candidates themselves or the, the, the appointed city clerk um, be in this role, but have, a, you know, a commission and every four year commission that does this that reviews uh, these that goes through these right that okay. says these are legit these are not legit this is a real issue and this is you know a non-issue or whatever that is 
applies the same standards, but you know, mm -hmm. otherwise we really don't know. It's there's no process for doing this unless you know someone from the other side says, "Aha, I'm going to check all these." Right. Yeah. So I think taking it out of the hands of the of this city clerk who has a whole other job and making a a special process for this makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the, good. Mm -hmm. Diane, one of the things that I find really most disturbing about it is that a candidate who did not, not need to do this, he's got enough support in the community. Right. That wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. And what the uh, long-term impact may be is major changes in our campaign financing laws. And I, I just, it, I just want candidates to be on the up and up always. I think that, I know, I know Serge is laughing at me. I think that's incredibly important, not just, but really when you're taking the public's money, right. then it, it, to me, it reaches another degree of importance that it be ethical, moral, and things to be done. Senator, let me ask I, you this. Does it make a difference because he wears a badge, the sheriff? It, 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 meaning, no. should he have taken even more precaution on yes. this? Yes, well, it, it, I think elected officials have even more of a responsibility because you, you swear to a constitution or a charter that you're going to be ethical and moral. Gotcha. The other point, quick point mm -hmm. is I have heard so many people say when we were discussing this, the immediate reaction is, well, I need to send many a check. Right. So it has, they don't like what has happened. Right. And they do feel like there is some bias. So what it may have done is give the sheriff a greater pot of money in which to run, much greater than the, the public funding might have been. You, you think he could make up a $600,000 gap? Oh, yeah. Really? Okay. Let me ask Serge yeah. this. Should the presence of some non-matching signatures disqualify potentially thousands of other valid ones? See, this is my point no. here. Does the presence yeah. or admission yeah. in the, Mr. Gonzalez's case of bad signatures or forms, does that indicate that a candidate can't keep her, her own house in order? Or is this just stuff that happens on the street that's out of their control? I mean, I, I think that goes to Diane's point of, mm -hmm. you know, then get 5,000 because then you won't have to worry about this. I do think, you know, yep. there's there, a few a few here and there is to be expected, but a large number where you know about it and submit these anyway, I mean, that that, that brings it to a whole other level, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think, you know, the, 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 the threshold is probably too high and probably in terms of the actual numbers right now. Yeah. But I do think... You have if to have I'm, a machine I'm, to pull it off. You have exactly. to have a legitimate machine to pull it off. It's not just standing out there with clipboards. Inez, right. go ahead. I saw your finger up there for a quick sec. Just real quickly, there's a real difference between making an error, which everyone can do, and committing fraud. And one is a crime. And if you're the sheriff of Bernalillo County and you're running because you're going to clean up all the crime in Albuquerque, the crime that you didn't take care of when you were Bernalillo County Sheriff, mm -hmm. but you will be able to do as mayor by that logic, committing forgery or having your employees or workers commit forgery does not seem to me to be the best campaign message. Mm-hmm. Good ending note there. We're out of time for this week. Thanks to everyone here for their th time and thoughts. I'm back in a moment. I want to share some extra content with you from the line now. Again, as we warm up for the show each week, we go around the table and get some thoughts from folks on other things that are happening this week in and around them and their lives. 
We just never have enough time in the show for everything we want to talk about. So this is a great way to get into some of that as well. We'll kick it off with uh, former Senator Diane Snyder and a great new addition to the Albuquerque Biopark that you may have seen or read about. I'm Gene Grant here in the studios of New Mexico PBS with our line opinion panelists. Joining me right there on Zoom, we're about to record this week's show. But as we like to do and traditionally do, we like to warm up by taking a turn at other issues that are on our minds. We have a lot of issues this week, a lot of issues. Man, let me start with Diane Snyder. Senator, good to see you as always, one of our regulars. What's your one more thing this week? Well, um, I have to confess, Jane, I was so overwhelmed with all the bad news and all the, the uh, I mean, I just, I kept reading, even to this morning, I, I just, and I listened last night. I, I've been very concerned about, um, and this is not my one more thing, but I've been very concerned about the Cubans who are trying to, at this point in their life, become an independent, I mean, a nation sure. of freedom. Mm -hmm. And I watched a town hall with them last night. It was very interesting. So I decided then I would just go with something a little lighter. And the 50 pound surprise at the zoo is a little, <laughs> no pun intended, but it's a little lighter subject. Yeah. I'm so excited about it. Uh, every time we have a baby, new baby at the zoo, I'm excited. I, uh, some of you may not know, but New Mexico's biopark is in the species survival pro plan around the world. Huh. And we take certain species and we care for them and develop them and rate, have babies. And then when they raise the babies to the point of them being out, hippos are not an endangered species right now, but they are under the watch level. They're only about 125,000 ah, in the world. Okay. And that's not a lot of hippos. No, it's not. And it goes back to the destruction of their habitat. Mm -hmm. um, they, they're carnivores, not carnivores, they're herbivores. And they eat like, I mean, our big guy at the zoo, the dad, uh, he eats like 100 pounds of, <laughs> of grass and stuff a day. Yeah. Now, here he's kind of got it easy. He gets not only grass, but he gets pumpkins and melons. And, and one of the things I, they said, it, it was a wonderful article by uh, Rick Nathanson again, but about the fact that they love whole watermelons or oh. pumpkins because they put them in their mouths and just crunch down once wow. and they love that but it's the they, the reason they were surprised is the mother rhino was on birth control so but they saw a little activity back in november and december that made them think that maybe and then along the way they she showed some signs of being pregnant mm -hmm. and they did an ultrasound and she was pregnant but What's so amazing about that is she's very young. She's only like uh, 19 years old, hmm. but dad is 47. And hippos normally don't live past 40. So he's, <laughs> I don't know whether in, pardon my. Do we have a zoo scandal here? Is that what we're saying? Plane, yeah, or what he was doing. Right. But we've got a baby, we've got a baby hippo. I think don't it's adorable. The, yeah, don't know the gender yet. Right. But. Uh, we're looking forward to it. at some point. He has to come out of the water before we can, they can tell that. But I just want to encourage our audience, go to the zoo, the biopark. I still mm -hmm. call it the zoo. Mm -hmm. I was trained as a docent many, many years ago oh. and used to be able to tell you all the names of all the animals, except the ducks and the birds. But it was just, a, it's an amazing place. 
You can even, and I had this one time, there was a leading leader CEO in Albuquerque that used to take people to the zoo when he was going to fire them so that they couldn't make a scene, I guess. I don't know. I, I turned that around and I used it for people. I would have staff meetings there occasionally or just take them. So there's a lot of ways you can go and enjoy our bio park. So take some time to do it and go see our little new rhino. I'm so excited. She's a, so. I, I know what you mean though. She's a little hippo. She's a little hippopotamus. I know what you mean. I, I, I did the same thing the other day. I kept calling her a rhino, but it's a little hippopotamus. Yeah, and I love, I love that. Hippo. Yeah. But 50 pounds, 50 pounds. That's right. So. Those pictures were so cute. You know yes, what I mean? They, they were, were so adorable. Oh my goodness. You know, we got to re keep in mind, I'm, I'm reminded of the, uh, your point about the melons and the uh, pumpkins and the one bite. Uh, those videos that are out there on YouTube about when hippos are fighting off lions and everything else, they're tough customers. I mean, yes, they're they really are. tough. They are. Oh, but, but man. But they're addicted to food and they get trained by food. Right. Uh, giving them food. But it is great to go and see it. Ours are we're not going to allow you in the cage with them or the, the park area, <laughs> but it is worth a trip down to see our bio park. So I, I invite agree. you all to do it. I agree. I have to turn my attentions to Serge Martinez. Serge, holy smokes, you're a wild animal lover of a sort, that's <laughs> for sure, in your own way. But you don't have to go animal. You don't have to go animal. What's your one more thing this week, my friend? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, thanks, Jim, for letting me off the animal hook today. Um, so I, you know, move in particular circles, but the folks that I talked to, been talking to some of my housing pals, um, an issue that's come up a lot lately has been, uh, you know, the the looming uh, end to the CBC moratorium to the stay here in New Mexico that the Supreme Court has, mm -hmm. and um, an idea that has sort of been bouncing around a little bit. I've been hearing more talk about of expungement of eviction proceedings. Hmm. As you know, in New Mexico, we've we recently passed laws that would that make it easier to expunge certain criminal convictions. The Cannabis Regulation Act automatically expunges a lot of cannabis uh, convictions. The idea being, we recognize that these things should not be a millstone around someone's neck, you know, for the rest of their days. That we are trying that you know obstacles that can be removed should be removed, where, you know, in appropriate situations. Um, and evictions are not all, you know, they are also these stumbling blocks that mm -hmm. make it harder for people to find good housing. You hear me say before, you've heard me say, no one ever gets evicted and moves into better housing. Well, that's right. not a question of preference. It's because, you know, the, the places that will take you as a tenant, um, you know, you're progressively going down the ladder when you have that mm -hmm. mark on your record. One of my a uh, fellow clinic professor out at University of North Carolina, his name is Captain Sabbath, calls it the Scarlet E. When you have an eviction on your record, right, it's a lot harder to find wow. uh, comparable housing. Um, but what we're going to see is, I assume, thousands and thousands more people, millions maybe across the country, right, that have evictions now on their records because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think it's a no-brainer to say, let's do something to make, you know, to seal these records or keep evictions during this time mm -hmm. from being a stumbling block for folks going forward. But I also think it's something that we should do, you know, much broader scale. Mm -hmm. Think about the ways that if we really, we just last year, we've learned the value of housing stability and access to good housing. This is just another obstacle that we've placed in folks' past that mm -hmm. gets used to keep them from accessing housing. So 
The idea of expungement and sealing these uh, sort of hearings is it's gaining steam. Um, we'll probably hear more about it as more people start to experience the realities of that, mm -hmm. unfortunately, um, going forward. The Scarlet E, that's very interesting. And you're right. Uh, I, I could see that scenario your colleague had mentioned that once that's on your permanent record, that's going to follow you around the rest of your life. That's interesting. I do have a quick question, though, uh, uh, Serge. I know it's early days for the idea. In the hearing process, would it be your in your imaginings that folks who are habitual, habitually being knocked out of places, would they get the same consideration of someone who had just been evicted for the first and only time? I mean, how would, how would you separate people that way? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, you know, I think first I would say, you know, between a particular date and a, you know, of like March last year and September this year, right. I'm just going to automatically seal those. But okay. going forward, you know, states like Minnesota, Nevada, they have procedures. They say, you know, after a certain amount of time has expired and you don't, you're not collecting another eviction. If you can show that it's in the interest of justice to have this sealed and that outweighs the interest of the public or other landlords or whatever mm -hmm. to have that information. So, you know, courts engage in these sorts of balancing acts, but the idea is that at least there would be a mechanism, right? right. As of now, there's really no, that's right. there's no way to do that. And that's your bigger point. We don't want to get lost here, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for bringing that up. That's, uh, we can always count on you certainly for housing issues, but that's a very interesting, I don't think most folks would think about that, how impactful the Scarlet E would be in, on a person's life and in their financial future as well. Wow. Inez Russell Gomez, good to have you back. Editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican, of course. What's your one more thing this week? Um, I'm like uh, the honorable uh, Diane Snyder because I want something cheerful and I want to invite everybody to come to Santa Fe this weekend because traditional Spanish market and oh. contemporary Hispanic market are on the plaza. Uh, it'll be the most usual normal of the markets that we're going to have this year mm -hmm. because folk art market had uh, limited entries and timed space. Indian market's going to have tickets and time space, but Spanish market is going to be on the plaza from, you know, eight to five, nine to five each day. Mm -hmm. And you will go meet the artists, buy art, it's outdoors. So the transmission worry is not as great. And there's always the opportunity to wear masks while you're outside. Mm -hmm. And because uh, there are going to be a lot of people and it's going to be, I think, a really relaxing weekend, especially for the artists who haven't been able to see their customers and their patrons for, you know, over a year, for two right. years. You, so, you, know, you just anticipated something uh, when you just mentioned that last bit there, Inez. I'm, I'm curious from your point of view, how you're sort of seeing the Santa Fe tourism landscape up there. I mean, obviously things have kind of come back with a rush, but from the ground, what, what's, your, what's your eye telling you out there? Um, my eye is telling me that uh, a tourist should dress in something other than shorts and t-shirts <laughs> because it's really unattractive. And um, I had been home until a few <laughs> weeks ago and we're back in the office most of the time. Yeah. So I've been walking downtown and the first time I crossed the plaza and there were so many people, I took my mask off my wrist and I put it back on right. because the people who come to Santa Fe are not wearing masks for the most part. They are very sure that the coronavirus pandemic is over. And again, they are dressing really poorly and hopefully <laughs> spending a lot of money and going home with great memories of Santa Fe. There you go. But they're not masked. Right. Uh, I could imagine. We saw what happened last year with that situation yeah. in Santa Fe. That's for sure. We'll have to wrap this up right there. Thanks for joining us. New Mexico in Focus airs Friday nights at 7 and Sunday mornings, you might not know, right here on New Mexico PBS.
That's it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. Coming up on the next episode, we will have a fascinating conversation about some of the sociological dynamics that go into the restaurant business, probably something you've never thought about, but we have a UNM professor and author who's written a fascinating book called Front of the House, Back of the House that looks at some of those issues, may have you looking at restaurants in a whole different light. Also, uh, Groundwater War correspondent Laura Paskus, she's done a ton of great work in the last couple years about PFAS contamination in and around military bases here in New Mexico. She recently gathered a group of other journalists from across the country who cover PFAS contamination as well to talk about what it's like covering this issue, how different states and the military even in different states are handling this contamination. It's a fascinating conversation all coming up on the next episode. In the meantime, keep up with us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. We are in all those places. Search for New Mexico in focus. Before you leave, please leave us a review. It helps out a bunch. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy.